We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Transformative Principal Podcast, where we learn how to be an amazing educational leader. I am your host, Jethro Jones. Are you ready to be a transformative principal? I'm looking for about 10 people who are ready to do what it takes to lead with integrity, find balance, and take your school to the next level. If you're looking to improve your leadership in a measurable way, go to transformativeprincipal.org slash mastermind to see if you qualify to join a group of like-minded people who are ready to be the best principals in the country. Welcome to Transformative Principal. Boy, I've got a treat for you. We are going to have a wonderful conversation with Terry Barilla, who is the Children's Resilience Initiative Director in Walla Walla, Washington. If you saw the movie Paper Tigers, you know uh, about the work that she has done and creating community-wide resources to support people who have had adverse childhood experiences and Boy, this is a great conversation. You are going to love it. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff and so much that <laughs> I, just, I just kept taking notes. So the show notes for this one are especially good. We talk about how to provide opportunities to calm down, how to help students get regulated, and a little bit about how the brain works and how teachers can start doing these things with students early on. Really great stuff. I hope that you enjoy listening and Take a minute to share this with any educator that has students who have had experiences with trauma in their school or community or in their students' lives, because this is definitely something that can truly help them. And appreciate you taking the time to listen. And uh, just a reminder about the Transformative Leadership Summit that's coming up here in just about a month and a half, and it's going to be awesome. So please sign up for that at transformativeleadershipsummit.com. 
Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am very excited to have Terry Barilla here on the podcast today. Some of you may have seen the movie Paper Tigers, and Terry is the mind behind that, though not the face of it like uh, Lincoln High School that was featured in that. So we are going to talk about ACEs and how to help our students be successful. Terry, thank you so much for being here and being on the Transformative Principle podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You are very welcome. I've talked many times on the podcast about the approaches that we've taken in dealing with uh, students who've been exposed to trauma. I've done a probably a pretty awful job of explaining it with my limited knowledge. But can you talk to us uh, just a little bit about what the ACEs study taught us about how to help kids be resilient? Sure. Let me try to summarize that. What what I see... Yeah, summarize that huge thing in about a minute to two minutes. That'll be great. <laughs> right. What I saw when I became familiar, not only with the ACE study, but, but that, that has to be tied to what we now understand about how toxic stress impacts our brain development, our brain architecture. Um, not not in a negative way, but from a survival standpoint. And I think it was that survival standpoint that really caught my attention and interest. Because when we understand why our children or why our adult you know, working next to me at the office, why they react so quickly and lash out and, and have negative responses. When we understand what toxic stress does to our brain, we can then begin to understand that that behavior we see is just a result of the brain having been developed to protect that individual in a way that perhaps that individual never learned self-regulation or a, a core sense of self-esteem. And so when you feel threatened, you go to that brainstem ready to defend yourself, the fight, flight, or freeze. And that's so hardwired in us because that's how we survive. That, but that's the challenge is how do we convert what we see as, quote, negative behavior to understand what's going on in this child's life or this adult's life? What, what happened that is creating that perception of, of a threat that they are then responding to to protect themselves. So in a nutshell, it's how we look at behavior with a different lens and we come to understand that that it's not what's wrong with this person and why are they trying to drive me crazy, but what has this person experienced? What has his history been? And what in the environment is triggering him that perhaps I can help manage that environment and then the resilient side of that is once we start to build in the strategies for recognizing our feelings, labeling them, validating them, we then can move towards building in those regulatory skill sets and the other resilient strategies that move us to our full potential. I think you did a great job summarizing that, Terry. That was very impressive. <laughs> Way to go. Thank you. When you talk about going to that brainstem, can you elaborate on that just a little bit? What do you mean by going to that brainstem? So when we face fear, when we face a threat, our bodies are instantly uh, primed to go into what's called the HPA axis, but it's basically how we respond to stress. It's when the cortisol and adrenaline hormones are pumped out on a second's notice, a nanosecond. You don't even know you're facing a threat, but your body has picked up on it. 
And that takes you to the most primitive part of your brain. It's right where your spinal cord connects into your brain. Uh, and it's called the brain stem. It's also known as the reptilian brain because it was the, it's the most primitive part of our brain. But because survival is so inherent to, to our survival, that's where we go. And that's because our body shuts down all other functionings other than what you need at that moment to survive. So your heart rate increases dramatically so that your blood can be pumping so that you'll have more energy to run or defend yourself or any of those um, examples. But your other parts of your brain shut down to maximize the energy to protect you. That's why you see examples of, you know, women picking up cars to get it off their child or or whatever. But it, it's so hardwired because the brain's job is survival. So if, if the brain doesn't help that organism survive, it, it's failed and it's out of the gene pool, right? <laughs> that's right, yep. So that's why it's such a survival. You have to understand, I think you have to understand, it's all about survival and protection. So the issue is, especially as we age, we tend to use these same response systems that protected us as a child that we maybe don't need later in life because we've learned other strategies, but that hardwired is always there. And and so I think that's a really important piece to to point out that it's not necessarily going to go away and we're not fixing the students that we're working with. We're not changing who they are. That's always going to be there. What you mentioned before is managing an environment to support a person. Can you talk a little bit about how that approach is different than trying to heal or fix someone? And before you do, I just want to preface that with a lot of times when I start talking about this with my staff, they think that I want them to be social workers and counselors, and I don't want them to be that. I want them to be the best teachers they can be and the best aides they can be and the best custodians and secretaries, but I want them to have an understanding of how to manage an environment better or support a particular student better without thinking that they are going to change or quote unquote fix that person. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I think it, for me, it takes us back to understanding our brain architecture. And I just referenced that briefly. When you go to your brainstem to protect yourself, I mentioned that the other centers of our brain shut down because your body can't attend to everything in that moment of stress. So it goes to what it needs for survival. So for example, when a teacher understands that, Rather than lecturing that child at that moment or expecting that consequence right then, that's the problem. The child is not up in that executive prefrontal cortex area where we can make good decisions. In fact, his or her language centers are basically disconnected when they're in that brainstem. They can't even hear the teacher. All they see is like a puppet in front of them, you know, wow, wow, wow. They, they don't even recognize the words. Why? Not because they're being a bad kid. Literally, their language function is turned off because they've got to be ready to protect themselves. And language doesn't protect you if you're trying to fight off the saber-toothed tiger in the old days or that, that threat of maybe being hit, hit, punched, or kicked. So when you understand that language doesn't work in that moment, then you won't go there, which only would further trigger the child. You don't expect a good response at the moment. You don't expect an understanding of consequences because that's not where the child is. So from that environmental standpoint, 
That's why you provide that opportunity to calm down many of the schools. Once they understand the shift that we're after, they provide what some people call safe zones or calm, calming down zones. It, it allows anyone to take that moment to move out of the brainstem, meaning to get back into a regulatory state through breathing, through just taking that moment to calm down and understand that no one is about to hit you or hurt you. Uh, take those deep breaths, take a moment to close, whatever it is that, and these are the strategies that teachers then, because they're in that classroom setting, will be asked to provide. But it's all about regulating the dysregulated child. That doesn't mean you're a mental health worker. That means you understand the brain well enough to understand you ain't getting to learning <laughs> until yeah. that child is out of that fight, flight, or freeze mentality. And if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, it's right there. I mean, he, he was so brilliant. He didn't have all the understanding we have now. But if you're in the second tier of Maslow is safety. Yeah, You cannot move up into learning and self-actualization if you're stuck down there on that safety. It's that plain and simple. And so what do we do in our environments? Typically, we only choose to further escalate that response by saying, oh, you don't belong in this classroom. I'm sending you to the principal's office because we don't understand our brains, not because any of us are, are trying to punish the child, but because we don't understand, we tend to use practices that we know don't match the state of the art in brain science. And so instead of choosing to exclude that child because of behavior, when we learn to recognize that the behavior is a call for help and when we provide a calm space right there and when the class all understands that any of us may be triggered by something so here's a place we just take a couple minutes to relax you know there's all kinds of um, strategies for that but what's really important is that you understand that the shift we're asking is to move away from those traditional practices that move to punishment to, to the state-of-the-art practices that recognize brain regulation and how we accomplish that. And as you saw in Paper Tigers, when a student is allowed to de-escalate, to turn back to regulatory state, you know, the status quo, then they're much more ready to say, whoa, I, that teacher didn't deserve that. I've already apologized. Uh, put me in school detention for a day to help me learn these skills. What a good response that we would all want from our students. So let's talk a little bit about moving from punishment to regulation. And how do we teach those skills to our students? And, and what skills should we be teaching to our students? I think it starts with helping the child learn how their own brains work. I mean, we teach them how to wash their hands and cover their cough, right? Yep, yep. For physical health, why don't we teach them how their brains work? That's more central even to our physical health is how our brains work to help us regulate 
ourselves. So I think helping, so obviously we want to move upstream to the preschool as they're first coming into school and not wait till they're in high school, you know, at an alternative high school. So when we can start to help children understand how their brains work, and typically that starts with helping them understand their own feelings and their own emotions, because many kids just don't have that level of of support at home, which is another story we could talk about. But again, think about the teacher. If you want to get that child to learn, you're not going to do it by beating them over the head when they're in that brainstem state. You're going to get to the learning by helping them to manage, first of all, recognize, validate, and manage their feelings so that they can stay regulated and ready to learn. And so those strategies can include anything from as a child walks into the classroom for the morning, a couple of teachers use a tongue depressor with the child's name on it, and there's two cups on the welcome table. It's, there's a happy cup and a not-so-happy cup. Where are you as you're walking into my classroom this morning? And for those kids that put their tongue depressor in the not-so-happy cup, that gives the teacher a moment to touch base with them one-on-one and say, can I help you with something? Did, did you miss breakfast? Or where are you this morning? You know, there we go to what's going on in your world that I could help you be more comfortable as you walk into my classroom so that you are ready to learn. I want to reiterate, though, it's not about a happy or not happy cup. It's does that teacher understand that shift in his or her own mental model about behavior and children? Because the happy cup's not going to work for you if you then, again, use it from a, a more traditional punishment kind of concept. So that's one example. Where are you as you're walking into my classroom? Because if I can't help you feel ready for learning right now, your whole day is probably going to be a problem for you and every other teacher. So if they need a protein break, give them a protein break. If they need a moment to talk to the intervention specialist because maybe something did disturb them last night or this morning, give them those couple of minutes. Give them time to go to that calming spot and just take a moment to be present and to be in that safe environment. Many teachers have gone towards a mantra, a song that they would sing as a group that says we are safe when we're together. The teacher's job is to help support that safety, and each child's job is to support that safety. And so there's other strategies like the kangaroo pouch, where if a teacher recognizes a child is starting to escalate, they invite that child to take their kangaroo baby and put it in the in the teacher's pouch for that moment that the child regulates in the calm zone And so everyone can celebrate that, look, um, Johnny took those three breaths. Maybe we all took three breaths to help the whole classroom remember about safety first. And, And then we welcome back into learning. So it starts with that paradigm shift that when I regulate the environment to address that perception of threat or lack of safety, I can actually help my students be ready to learn, and it might only take a couple minutes in the morning to do that. It might take a couple more minutes than that, but let's start the process. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that 
that I've seen with that is that students are able to articulate that when given the opportunity, but they're not able to articulate that unless they've got some support. And you talked about teaching them how their brain works at a very early age. And I I agree with how important that is. Just one personal example. I have a son who is seven years old, and when he gets upset, then it's easy for him to lose focus of everything else like it is for everybody, right? He goes to that brainstem. And so what I've started doing is this doesn't take any time. I just repeat back to him the concern or complaint or whatever it is that he's upset about. I just repeat that back to him. So my sister took my toy away. I can then say, your sister took your toy away. And that just that one little thing brings him way down from his escalation of his attitude and brings him way down. And just something that simple is is very easy. So you've given a bunch of strategies. When those are preventative that you've talked about mostly, what are some that we can do in the moment when the student is out of control and not reacting, as we would say, appropriately to what's going on in the classroom? And your point is perfect because what you're doing is, first of all, you're being present with that child to recognize where he is. That's important. This is all about being present with the child and recognizing that initial escalation. You're then validating him by saying, I see you're upset. The next step, I'm sure, would be to say, wow, you have a big feeling right now. And I can understand that when, when your sister takes your toy away, that makes you feel bad, doesn't it? And so you're noticing, you're naming, you're validating that, yes, you have that right to feel angry. Anybody that has a possession taken from them <laughs> would feel angry. But here's the big step then, is how do we manage that in a, in a more pro-social way? So next, where are your words When you take my toy, that makes me feel very angry. Please ask if you may borrow my toy. So that was just finishing up those steps that you mentioned. Yeah, I appreciate that too, because I wasn't quite there yet with my own child. So I will be now. Thank you. I took notes. (laughs) Four-step process. First is being present, because so many of us just don't even see what's going on. We forget to notice. We forget to just calm, you know, stay slow enough, or maybe that's not the right word, but to be present. I think that's the best way to say it. Can I even see that my child is starting that escalation or is already into it? And rather than doing the knee jerk, oh, I'm going to punish you for having a feeling, which is what we tend to do. It's like, I see that you're angry. The emotion itself is totally valid. We have the right to feel any of those emotions. Where we need to help them is when you feel that emotion, do you have enough skills to manage it? And, of course, in the younger ages, they don't. That's what this is all about. We have to help them learn those skills um, so that they can say, I am angry right now. I am mad at you. That at least puts it on the table rather than the hit or the kick or the blow. And then it's, when you're angry, what do you do? Well, I use words to say, I am angry, but I will ask you with my words, 
you know, to work with me next time. In, in a classroom setting, I certainly understand the implication that a teacher faces in, in one disruptive child when there's 29 others deserving that attention. So again, when this is built in right from the beginning, when the classroom understands we're all responsible for all of ourselves, I'm not sure if that's grammatically correct, but when we understand we all help contribute to safety, we can, as a group, as a family of students, we can understand that when one of us is having trouble, we don't alienate them. We say, oh, look, he's having trouble. Let's help, just like you try to do in a family setting. So I, I think that's part of that shift is how do we create those environments of safety and attachment. And when you do it right from day one, it's a whole lot easier than trying to retroactively explain that. Uh, another shift is when a child is late coming to school. No child is responsible for them being late, right, at these early ages. Yep, yep. Punishing that child for, for whatever the situation was with a tardy slip or maybe even detention, some schools have gone to the welcome slip. We're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Rather than continuing to punish the child for something that's outside of his control, why don't we welcome him in now that he's here and help him be ready to learn? So again, I always go back to our, our three core concepts are safety, connection, learning. And those are the three major parts of the brain in a very simplified format, which is the brainstem, the limbic system, which helps us around connection, relationship, empathy, compassion, and then the prefrontal cortex, which is learning. So when we think of what can we do to help create safety, connection, and thus learning, the, the mental model shift isn't so hard to make nor are the strategies that encourage safety and connection. Yeah, really powerful. Well, that was a great interview with Terry Barilla. Next week, we're going to continue this conversation, and we're going to talk about the different concerns that people have when you start implementing this and how to respond to some of that. Also, she's going to give a lot of links to books and other things. So be sure to check the show notes and I look forward to chatting with you or having you listen because we're not chatting next week for the transformative principle podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Please, if you don't mind, take a moment, go uh, leave a review for this podcast in iTunes. And uh, that would be great. That helps other people learn about it. And then make sure you share this with others. That would be wonderful as well. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Transformative Principal is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention 
meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.